Charlotte stared at the gaping hole in the floor where George had been just moments before. Her mind screamed, begging her to run, but her body wouldn't respond. Jerome rushed to her and grabbed her arm to lead her up the stairs. It was like pulling cement. Below, the figure huffed, its breath heavy. Charlotte looked back to see the figure step around the hole in one inhuman step. She felt cold in her shins. The pair reached the top of the stairs and found themselves staring out to the stormy night in all directions. The fierce tapping of wind-thrown rain filled the air. Charlotte hadn't heard rain so loud before. It was like bullets were hitting the walls and exploding in small bursts. Jerome pulled her further in, toward the round dais on the floor in the center of the room where the lantern should have been. Standing in its place was a makeshift altar of bones tied together with dried weeds. An obsidian bowl sat before the altar and an obsidian knife next to it. The knife was wet with blood. At the bottom of the stairs, a rhythmic, low thud pierced through the explosion of raindrops. What do we do? Charlotte asked. Jerome had picked up the knife. He tested its edge as he had tested the edges of so many knives before, in so many rooms not too different from the room he stood in now. He breathed in heavily and spoke. I've been here before, he said. Well, not here, but somewhere like it. Charlotte stared at him, wide-eyed. This time, it's you. Last time it was Bradley. Never has it been George. What... What are you saying, Jerome? He shook his head. She'd never understand, or at least none of them had before. The low thought on the stairs grew louder. I wonder what will happen this time, he said, knife in hand. I wonder if this is what was supposed to happen in the first place. He brandished the knife at Charlotte, who was too paralyzed by the sound of his voice to react. He threw the knife from hand to hand. Charlotte's eyes couldn't track the black blade in the dim light. Even now, you can't move? Jerome said. None of you ever have. He stopped the knife. Maybe that was supposed to be a sign. Without warning or hesitation, he raised the knife and struck it hard into his chest. Like turning on a faucet, his blood came pouring out, almost too fast to be believable. He scrambled for the bowl at the altar and collapsed to his knees just before it his blood flowing right into the bowl. Charlotte began to cry. Her body was as stone. The candles began to light around the altar, candles that either she hadn't seen or hadn't been there before. She felt a soft hum somewhere within the explosions of rain, and the even louder thud from the stairs. The soft hum grew louder and louder still, until she realized she couldn't hear the rain anymore. She looked outside and saw the drops floating in midair, mid-fall. Her heavy breath had grown quiet. The only sound seemed to be the shimmering hum covering everything. It felt... safe. Thud. The figure had reached the top of the stairs. No, Charlotte heard herself say as the rain began to fall again. She fell over Jerome's body, resting her head on his... What was supposed to happen? Why did you do that? Her tears flowed, wet and salty, falling from her face into the bowl of her friend's blood on the altar. I've made it, 
the figure said, his voice twisted as if in pain. I've made it. Made it. Made it. Charlotte tore her head away from Jerome's. If she was going to die here, she would know very well who or what was killing her. The figure stepped forward and a flash of lightning illuminated for the briefest of seconds. Her mind could not comprehend. Her eyes watered freely. Although she made no sound, she felt numb all over, and then she felt nothing. The figure stepped over the pair, huddled together before the altar. It took no notice of the humming or the rain or even the lighthouse. Instead, it continued to walk toward a circle drawn in chalk just beyond the altar. The humming increased in volume and strength. The wooden floor began to creak under its enormous force. The blood in the bowl began to glow and the figure laughed, low and deep. A door appears in the circle. A white wooden door stands in the middle of the room. Finally. 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 It reaches out a hand and grasps the knob. I sacrificed so much. But finally. I'm here. Hello and welcome to the finale of the Frightened Times here on Zero Credits. My name's Henry. John? John? <laughs> John, are did you, you okay? Did you get scared? Did you? Uh, I was frightened for your safety. Oh, uh, well, you were frightened, so I did my job. <laughs> you were trying to spook me? Yeah, I was trying to do one of those jump scares I just learned about. You just learned about jump scares today? I mean, I had heard the words put together, but I never, I never understood that you have to jump at someone and scream for it to be a jump scare. Yeah, but we're doing this over Skype, so how can you jump at me? Oh, I jumped at my uh, microphone. You jumped at your microphone. But we, yeah. do, we, we don't use video, so how? I, I didn't see that. Yeah, well, I jumped and I scared. It was it was a jump scare. I oh, shit. I always the the jump- jumping is integral to the getting scared. Yeah, kind of. It, it has to jump out at you. I thought you just hyped yourself up for the scare by jumping. No, no. Poor, poor John. Poor John. Oh, man. Well, everyone. That's that's another frightened times I've bunged up. (laughs) Welcome back to Zero Credits Presents the Frightened Times. This is sadly our last episode of Frightened Times as the month of October is drawing to a close. As the ritual nears its end and the sun reaches its equinox, so too must the Frightened Times end. But first, before the end of the Frightened Times, we have to get through the spookiest and scariest content that we've covered thus far. As all of our loyal listeners know, through the entire month of the Frightened Times, we've been covering a series of inexplicable, unexplained, unsolved mysteries, the nature of fear itself, and anything that's spooky-dooky. And this week we're going to hit pretty close to home, or at least my home, as our unresolved mystery for this week happened in New Orleans. Oh, the city of brotherly love. (laughs) The city that never sleeps. The windy city, if you will. The show-me state. The show-me state, Nolens. I don't like when people call it Nolens. 
Yeah, I never have heard a real person call it Nolens, but that's besides the point. Or New Orleans. It's always New Orleans. Anyway, so, so John, mm. have you ever heard of the Axeman? Uh, I've heard that he cometh. The Axeman cometh, and the Axeman liketh jazz, John. Oh, I I didn't know that the, the Axeman was a jazz fan. Oh, he was the biggest of jazz fans, and... People listening at home, you might be familiar with the Axeman. Uh, I hear he made an appearance in some form in American Horror Story, I believe season three? Oh, was that Coven? It might have been Coven. It's the one that took place in Louisiana. I think that's Coven, but I, I, I digress, Henry. I'm going to pull up a nice relaxing jazz pillow, relax into a supine state, and let you regale me with tales of the Axeman. Alright, this Tales from the Axeman write-up comes from Jake Rawson from Mental Floss. Pauline Bruno was terrified of the Axeman. Like most residents of New Orleans, the 18-year-old had spent weeks reading the morbid newspaper accounts of his attacks. Each home invasion was remarkably similar. The assailant would use a chisel to pry out a door panel, unlock the entrance, and then find the master bedroom, using an axe, one that usually belonged to his victims. He'd hack and swipe at couples who were sound asleep in the early morning hours. He would take nothing and leave only one clue behind, the bloodied hatchet caked with gore and strands of hair. Pauline had dreaded the potential for her home to be targeted. On the evening of August 10, 1918, she had been sleeping next to her younger sister Mary when they heard their uncle, Joseph Romano, screaming. The girls rushed to his bedroom and opened the door. Standing over Joseph was a tall man wearing a slouch hat and a dark suit. Their uncle moaned, blood spreading across the sheets. Pauline's worst fear had come true. She was in the presence of the Axeman. The girls screamed. The killer, who had not been above slashing women or children in previous attacks, fled. It was too late for Joseph. Medical examiners would later find two gaping wounds in his head. He died hours after being admitted to the hospital. For nearly two years, the Axeman of New Orleans would terrorize residents with an uncanny ability to materialize in their homes, bludgeoning them with axes kept in their own tool sheds and then disappearing without a trace. His face and voice were reduced to hazy memories by survivors he would never be caught. And while all of this would be enough to commit him to history, his March 1919 letter to a newspaper guaranteed his infamy. Writing from, quote, the depths of hell, he expressed joy over the bloodshed he had caused. Residents terrified of being targeted had one recourse. If they liked jazz music, and if he heard it while approaching his next victim, he would spare their lives. While the Axeman spree appeared to begin with the December 1917 attacks on the four members of the Andolina family, 
husband Epiphania, his wife, and their two sons, all of whom survived glancing blows from a hatchet, authorities soon speculated his work had started much earlier. What happened in the early part of the 1910s is still up for debate. Some historians insist that this was mass hysteria, but others insist that it really happened. But the story goes on that on August 13, 1910, grocer August Crudy and his wife awoke to a man demanding money. He brandished a meat cleaver and struck both in the head. Then he strode barefoot out of their home, where a neighbor would testify that she saw a man carrying the couple's birdcage a few feet before releasing the mockingbird inside. Putting on his shoes, he sauntered off. Those victims survived. So did the Rossettos, who entered more cleaver strikes before the prowler took off. And so did Mary Davy, a woman who was attacked in June of 1911. Her husband Joe became the cleaver intruder's first fatality, dying of his head wounds. By this point, perhaps the killer realized how surprisingly difficult it was to murder someone with a hacking assault. He struck just once more in this period, shooting and wounding Tony Siambra and his wife on May 15, 1912. Why, if a gun was used, were the Siambras suspected of being victimized by the same man? It would be six years before the reason became apparent. In May 1918, Joe Maggio and his wife were discovered by Maggio's brothers after being struck with multiple axe wounds, their throat sliced with a straight razor. Mrs. Maggio's head was cut nearly clean off her body. An axe was left in the bathtub. While surveying the scene, detectives found an unusual message scrawled in shock just a block from the Maggio residence. Mrs. Maggio is going to sit up tonight just like Mrs. Tony. The Mrs. Tony, they theorized, referred to Siambra's wife, who was referred to as Mrs. Tony by some of their customers. It was a thin line between the rash of murders, but police had little else to go on. After six documented home invasions and several near misses that resulted in eight deaths and ten injuries, the Axeman made his most audacious move yet. On March 14, 1919, the New Orleans Times-Picayune published a letter purporting to be from the hand of the killer. He wrote, They have never caught me, and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know whom they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he whom I have sent below to keep me company. Now to be exact, at 12.15 earthly time on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans, and my infinite mercy... I am going to make a little proposition to you people. Here it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether region that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is that some of your people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. 
That following Tuesday, March 18, was said to be a boisterous evening even by New Orleans standards. Thousands of homes blasted jazz music loud enough to be heard by any passing murderers. Those who didn't own home stereos stuffed themselves into clubs and lounges or held block parties. A morbid piece of sheet music, the mysterious Axeman's jazz was circulated, the cover art depicting a family frantically playing a piano while on the lookout for an intruder. Whether the threat was credible or not, no one died of axe wounds that night. The Axeman would strike four more times that year. He took one swipe at 19-year-old Sarah Lumen, knocking out her teeth before her screams made him flee. Steve Boca was hacked but had the strength to stagger to a neighbor's door for help. William Carson actually shot at an intruder, apparently missing but successfully scaring him away. On October 27, Mike Pepitone was smashed with an iron bar, an impromptu weapon when the killer presumably found that Pepitone didn't own an axe. All but Pepitone survived. His face had been warped into an unrecognizable mass, according to the Times-Picayune, and there were no more assaults. Detectives had suspected the killings might be mafia-related, since many of the victims were Italian and might have been subject to intimidation. Others dismissed that theory, believing the organized crime of the area had ironclad rules that prohibited harming women and children. Only one suspect was ever circulated by amateur sleuths in the preceding deaths, but it's likely he became associated with the case due to his death at the hands of Pepitone's widow, Esther. She had remarried and shot a man named Doc Mumphrey after believing he had something to do with her second husband's disappearance in Los Angeles. Owing to several aliases he used, Leon Manfrey, Frank Mumphrey, his identity became intertwined with that of a Joe Mumphrey, who was in and out of prison in New Orleans around the time of the second series of killings. It's unlikely, though not impossible, the two men were one and the same. With no fingerprints, reliable eyewitness identification, or plausible suspects, authorities never solved the case of the Axemen who had terrorized New Orleans. At the height of his rampage, some families took turns sleeping to keep watch for any sign of force entry and to blare jazz music at high volume. Whether he was truly a music lover will never be known. For a man who relished an opportunity to brutalize people with an axe, the fact that a city held a loud party and wrote a song in his honor may have been satisfaction enough. So amazingly, out of all the details in that story, uh, two really stuck out to me. Number one is, God, I love New Orleans. Right? Because only in New Orleans could you propagate the mystery of a jazz-loving devil. Yeah, and, and like, you know, lots of lots of cities have their serial killers, but this one comes with a little extra flavor, a little lanyap, if you will. Ooh, a little bit extra. <laughs> a little bit extra, just because of the jazz aspect of it all. One thing that I was wondering listening to that story, because I had never heard the, the detail about the jazz before, really. Yeah. And one thing that stuck out to me was, do you think that someone wrote that in an attempt to have, like, the wildest, weirdest party? It, it could be, you, you know, because... 
at no other instances does the Axemen ever really talk about jazz, and there's no way to corroborate if that 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 message was actually from the Axemen or not. And then he was never caught, right? He was never caught. They had a suspect, but they let him go because they could not they they couldn't prove anything. And a, a potential reign of terror spanning nine years. Yeah. Very scary stuff, the idea that someone could visit these uh, kind of violent-seeming, like, retributions on people for nine years without being caught. But I suppose it was a different time, law enforcement and forensics-wise. Yeah. If you read a lot about famous serial killers like the Zodiac Killer or even the original Night Stalker, uh, a lot... A lot of them terrorize areas over a number of years and they're never caught just because the technology wasn't up to snuff back then. Like, if the person didn't leave any DNA behind on the scene, and it, not even that, if they didn't leave a fingerprint or something like that, something that they could they could trace to a database, and a lot of cases databases didn't exist, there was no way to catch them. And one thing that stuck out to me, and I know that a lot of these unsolved mysteries do get this kind of flavor over time because as time passes and people have less of a personal connection things get embellished a little bit yeah of course but the the poetry of a lot of this is really what stands out to me the idea that the first people he attacked with a meat cleaver he then took a bird cage from them and released a mockingbird yeah, you have to question some of these details and how much that they can be relied because uh, like a lot of a lot of details and cases are are passed down kind of like through an oral tradition and people embellish over time. And especially considering it was during an age where you sold newspapers not necessarily on fact sometimes. Well, I guess that hasn't really changed. Yeah, but but there was there was less of like an ethical integrity about like journalism didn't really come into its ethical fruition until like the turn of the century or at least like the mid like 1950s so there there you know if there was a murderer about you could capitalize on that with really odd details to make them stand out and i think that the level of detail in this particular accounting for the story is very admirable it paints a really good picture and I've been watching, and not to get into it too much, uh, but I've been watching the show Mind Hunter. That's essentially about the science of serial killers. All right, yeah, it just came out on Netflix. Yeah, David Fincher, and the uh, the rationale behind some of these long term uh, mass murderers or serial criminals is fascinating to me. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why getting into true crime or unresolved mysteries is so fascinating because these are people whose perceptions of the world are so warped a lot of them have these weird god complexes where they they believe they're the only ones who can choose who lives and dies and so they're just in their mind enacting their godly duty and this kind of harkens back to something we talked about before in our discussions about the nature of fear which is a weird sentence yeah uh but we talked about some of the scariest things being just bad things happening for seemingly no reason yeah i was watching a i've been doing this thing where i watch a horror movie every day for the month of frightened times and i was watching a movie on netflix called i am the pretty thing that lives in the house what yeah, that's the name of it. It's very good. 
Oh, okay. Uh, it's about a ghost, uh, kind of. But the most affecting thing about it, and it managed to do something which very few horror movies do, is like creep me out deep into the night and affect my dreams. Yeah. But the reason it did that is the reason why so many of these cases are as spellbinding as they are, because it didn't explain itself, really. The things that happened, you could kind of see a, a through line as to why they were taking place, but you never fully understood the situation. Nothing was ever completely explained to you. I think that ties into fear being some measure of uncertainty, because if... If a horror movie explains the mechanism of the horror, then they're dispelling that horror. They're, they're removing all of the power and mystery behind it. Which is where a lot of horror storytelling, especially lately, goes wrong. Because it seems like writers of horror are very interested in setting up a world and lore and a system in which this all takes place. And you can't be scared of something that you understand. Yeah, like in the way that uh, A Cabin in the Woods is a horror movie for the first, let's say, 25% of the movie, but as soon as they reveal the facility underneath the cabin and like the, the basically the technical support guys, it stops being a horror movie and starts being an observation of horror movies. And you can see very similar things in, like, The Conjuring, because The Conjuring completely explains the nature of the bad thing that's happening, and then it just becomes a gallery of watching bad things happen. Yeah. Like, like so a horror movie, a true horror, horror movie, shouldn't explain itself. It shouldn't reveal its mechanisms of, like, why things are happening. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I truly believe that the first Friday the 13th uh, aside from the twist ending, is one of the poorest horror movies ever. Because it has a full-blown twist ending that really doesn't make a lot of sense if you look back through it. And it just completely robs it of its potential to scare you because it turns into a Scooby-Doo episode. Is Friday the 13th, is that, is that, the, uh, is that Jason? Yeah, that's Jason. And uh, spoilers, I guess, like 40 years after the fact. Yeah. But the original Friday the 13th ends, and the twist is it was his mother who was killing people, and it was not Jason. How does that make sense? Uh, exactly. How does it make sense that a woman in her 40s or 50s was, like, throwing people through windows and easily strangling people, and the hands and shoulders that were shown in frame were clearly huge man features? Maybe she was possessing her son. Well, that's explained in the twist at the end, where Jason's, like, young child corpse comes out of the water and drags the final survivor down, and that's a pretty good twist. Wait, so Jason died as a baby? As a child? Jason died as a teenager, I think. Oh. Well, or, then like, a, an early teen. Is the mother alive? Yeah, the mother's alive, and she's, like, getting revenge for people who, like, didn't look after Jason and let him drown. That's stupid yeah that twist is stupid but it is it's a classic like gotcha twist at the end when jason is a monster baby oh okay i guess i can see that i i think twist endings in horror movies are one they're overdone like and two they like i don't know i feel like a twist ending is always a weak attempt to try to explain what happened and then we just discussed just don't explain it. Just let it let it creep. Let it creep over us. 
Yeah, I mean, the the thing that horror movies so often try to do, and hell, almost all movies try to do this now, but they try to pack one final revelation in at the end to flip-flop turn around your understanding of what you've been watching up until that point. And uh, I, I Am the Pretty Thing That Lives in the House doesn't do that at all. So it's a story about a ghost? It's a story about a ghost, and that's all you need to know. Is it from the ghost's perspective? No, it's from the perspective of a hospice worker. Oh. Also, the writing's really good. All right. Well, and how did you watch this? Netflix. All right, so it's on Netflix. So if you're feeling a spooky Halloween movie, you know, in this this last few days of Halloween of Frightened Times, I suggest you check it out. I mean, uh, if you've got a taste for horror movies after your inaugural visit with the genre, I think you might should watch that. I might check it out as long as I can watch it with another person. Watch it with another person. Also, it's real short. How short is it? Like an hour and 20 minutes. That's, well, that's, that's a, that's real short. Yep. Horror movies don't really tend to, to, unless it's The Shining, horror movies don't really tend to last that long, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's something that's hard to keep going. I was seeing this thing to, uh, to switch gears a little bit. Okay. But something that I was thinking about that kind of ties into this is horror movies and horror fiction kind of in general, unless they're doing something very special, wear out their welcome extremely quickly. Yeah, because I think there's only there's only so long that a person can be frightened by like a single conceit, or maybe there's only so long that a person can be frightened by something that's not physically threatening them. And I mean, it's true in basically everything, but especially movies where the core of the scares that happen are supposed to be surprising, frightening jump scares where things jump out at you because it becomes physically exhausting to watch and you become completely numb to it. Exactly. Like, that. there's a, an amount of energy that we can put toward being scared Unless, like, like you can only trigger that fight or flights, uh, what is it called? F- uh, fight or flight response. Yeah, response. You can only trigger that fight or f- flight response so many times before the body's like, wait, I'm not in act- any actual danger, or, or, like, I'm too exhausted to respond as I normally would, so you're not scared right now. And you can really only have something that lasts for a long time if it's kind of a slow burn, like The Shining, if something is, like, really trying to tell you something over a long period of time, though The Shining could certainly be cleaned up in spots. Yeah, I, I feel like if you're going to do, like, a creeping dread story, uh, a story where the horror kind of sneaks up on you over the, the period of a lot of establishing, like, this world and these characters, then you can you can kind of run a little bit longer, because the actual horror part in that movie, like, the actual... Uh, Jack Torrance has been completely taken over by these these spirits is relatively short compared to the entire movie. And uh, a good example of something that does this to the extreme is a movie like The Wailing, uh, which is damn near three hours long. What? Wow, what is The Wailing? Uh, it is an Asian horror movie about mass hysteria uh, sweeping over a village after a series of murders happens. It's really good. And so you can you're basically watching this small town transform from like normal everyday life to this kind of like tormented hellscape. It's 
a masterpiece in what horror movies can and maybe should be if they're on the longer side, which is you're not getting scared, you are actually becoming horrified. Yeah, I, I feel like that's what The Shining is is accomplishing during that movie. It's not out to scare you, it's out to, to horrify you to your core by like the creeping dread that it's able to produce. And this is true of books as well. I mean, look at uh, House of Leaves. House of Leaves is a horror story? Yeah, House of Leaves is absolutely a horror story. I've never read it. Uh, I would recommend it. There are parts you can absolutely skip. But it is a book that when reading it, there was a point where I turned a page and I became... It's it's weird to explain what did it and it would be a spoiler to, but you flip a certain page and something changes and like your heart sinks into your stomach. I had to stop reading it. Wow. I know it's a book that you want to read a physical copy of because of the way that it's formatted. Yeah, exactly. It's a real, um, what is the, what, uh, I, I can't remember the name of that book that came out last year, but it's formatting was a big thing, whatever. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I just know that I shouldn't download it. You shouldn't download it. Don't copy that floppy. You should buy that book. Well, what, what I mean, like, don't download a Kindle version since I do have a Kindle. Yeah, I, I would always recommend reading House of Leaves in physical format. Well, then I'll just have to pop over to a bookstore and try to check that out. Or you can borrow my copy. I could do that. Because I've gotten interested in reading horror books or books that are horrifying. And, I, you know, I think The Shining kind of triggered it because I want to see the writing. I want to see how somebody can produce those feelings or create those feelings through something that you're not seeing visually. Some of the richest experiences I've had with the horror genre are through literature, so I'd recommend it. And and that might speak to something where, because in literature, our minds are filling in the gaps. We're, We're reading the description and the imagery that the author has provided, but the author does not give us pictures. So our minds kind of fill in what we think the pictures would look like and i think that that gets the brain more involved and so we're we're more concentrated on like these horrifying images and that might be a better or a more effective way at creating the horror that we're talking about yeah that was the whole hp lovecraft thing the belief that there's almost no reason to fully describe something that's horrifying because whatever people perceive as horrifying is going to be you know tailored to whatever they would think is scary yeah and and there are countless examples of a movie trying to re create that like by not showing the monster by showing only the remains of the monster or showing just hints or signs of the monster only to reveal what the the end boss looks like and having it kind of be a complete joke yeah uh horror movie monsters they're tough to do right and for a while I, i know you're not as familiar with doctor who but for a while in the early reboot of doctor who every episode would do this would do this weird thing where they show like from the monster's perspective or show just like a hint of like whatever alien of the week it was and it yeah enough of that and it just becomes ineffective and you're just like well i don't care that about this monster just show it to me yeah then it's just like oh it's just like a weird like ceiling butthole yeah that that's always a weird ceiling butthole especially in the early uh russell t davis years damn it doctor who <laughs> But it's it's tough to write horror. I I give props. I've I've tried to write horror a few times myself to varying degrees of success. 
it's not something that I've actually ever dabbled in, despite some recent things that I've been putting together. And all like while writing these things, all I can think is: is this actually scary? Like, am I am I pulling this off, or is it just adequate enough that people can see what I'm trying to do? Yeah, yeah. I I don't know. Imposter syndrome, man. Yeah, I, and the, I think the worst thing that you could do while cr- trying to create a horror movie is just have the reaction be, oh yeah, I see what you're trying to do there. Uh, that's the worst reaction to literally anything. And writing is particularly uh, susceptible to that because you're not going to have a concert and then everyone in the audience in unison goes, oh, I see what you're trying to do there. Yeah, no, like at a concert, you're... <laughs> Hopefully it's going to be applause or or you'll get you'll get negative reactions but you won't get any huh okay maybe in a few years they'll make it. Yeah, you know, just polish that a little bit and maybe it'll be good. Yeah, c- call us when you do the final draft. Hey, uh, Henry, what's up? I I I didn't really want to bring this up on the podcast, but we don't really talk a lot outside of the podcast, so you can edit this out if you want to. Okay. But, like, speaking of final drafts, have you, like, have you heard from Trevor lately? Oh, uh, I, I was hoping he was talking to you. I actually haven't heard from him in, in quite quite some time. Nah, he, he's been off my radar for a while. I tried to message him on WhatsApp, but he's just, I don't know, he hasn't read anything, hasn't responded pretty much since the Frightened Time started. Yeah, that's really weird. Like, are, are the episode descriptions getting posted? I mean, I don't really check the feed. Yeah, I, I don't either. I, I, he kind of handles all of that for us. Um, well, I hope he's okay. I mean, I've been looking at the numbers, so the episodes are going up. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe he's just trying to, I don't know. Trevor's a weird guy. He is kind of a weird guy. Weird guy. Weird guy. The white door opens and the figure steps through. The sounds of the storm vanish as it steps through, along with the door and the lighthouse. Undaunted, the figure walks forward, one slow step after another. In the distance, there's a glaring red light, and the figure moves toward it. The writhing mass beneath the figure's jacket starts to move erratically. Each step, a bit of the mass falls to the ground. The figure raises an arm and strikes its torso, grunting as the fist connects. Not much longer. Not much longer. The words fall out of the figure, but it does not know where they come from. It lost its mouth so long ago. The writhing calms to the undulation that has become its normal, and the figure continues. The red light takes shape as the figure moves closer, the blurry light dancing into words in a language it has long forgotten. The light evokes a strange feeling in the figure, an itch at the back of its melting head. Another door appears to the side of the light. It is a large steel door that the figure knows is locked from the inside. A large window appears on the other side of the red light. As the figure gets closer, its various eyes adjust to the red glare, allowing it to peer into the dimly lit room on the other side. Two individuals sit on a couch in front of a large screen. A microphone sits on the table before them, another red glaring light at the top of its dome. They talk about a movie at length, not quite ever making a point or reaching any real conclusion. 
The figure's head buzzes. There was something it needed to do. Something dire. Something worth the sacrifice. It looks at its slime-covered hands, each finger split into countless tendrils. It looks at its arms, bloated and purple, and tries to remember what it was sent to do. What it was trying to protect. The figure taps on the glass, even though somewhere in whatever remains of its mind knows it is forbidden. Yeah, I guess he's been busy or something. I mean, everybody's got lives. We all got stuff going on. I'm not going to judge him. Yeah, and it's not like we pay him, so it's, it, you know, it's whatever. He can talk to us or not. Yeah, I mean, whatever. It's not worth worrying about. Whatever, this podcast train is going to keep on a rolling. Yep, no matter what does or doesn't try to get in our way, we're just going to keep pulling forward into that Frightened Times station. This ghost train's got a cow catcher. Oh, man, ghost trains are awesome, right? I, uh, I've only suplexed one in a video game. When did you suplex a ghost train? This sounds very familiar. It's uh, Final Fantasy VI. All right, you suplex a ghost train. Is that the one with the guy who knows martial arts and you, like, put in Street Fighter combos? I never played any past Final Fantasy IV. Oh, I see how you are. Well, yeah, I, I only played the Nintendo ones. Do you have any particular affinity for scary video games? I can't play them. I, I honestly, I, I try. I, I've only ever bought two scary video games, John. Uh, which one would they be? <laughs> they would be Resident Evil 4. Oh, Resident Evil 4 is the best game ever made. Everyone says that, and so I, I tried to play it, and I the movement, like the fact that you can't shoot and move at the same time, and just, like, the creepy, the whispering, like, the surround sound noises that you hear. I, I just couldn't, I could not. I, I watched someone play my, my game on my console to experience about half of it. It's a great game because it starts scary and parts of it stay scary. But it's, oh, it's, it's so good because it balances being frightening and being empowering so well. I could talk about that game forever. It's one of the most, like, remade games of all time. I think it, it spans multiple generations and appears on something like six or seven consoles. I just started playing it again. Oh, you did? Mm-hmm. What a weird coincidence. Yeah, what's the other one you bought? Uh, this one was more recent. I, I bought Until Dawn, which we've talked about on the podcast before. Oh, yeah, Peter Stormare. Yeah, the the... The basically like uh, the horror movie that you play. I uh, I've always had an affinity for scary games, but I'm never. They always get to me way more than anything else does. It's so weird. Like I, to an extent, I can watch a scary movie. To an extent, I can read a, a horror story. Like I, I will, I will finish those things if I start them. To no extent can I play a scary video game. I guess it goes back to that old. Uh... It's, there's a saying about video games, I forget who said it, but it, it speaks to, like, the quality of video games as a storytelling device. Yeah. And the 
idea is that you if you're reading a book or watching a movie about like a knight who's going into a castle to save a princess yeah if he gets incinerated by a dragon you think you stupid knight you couldn't save the princess you idiot but if you get incinerated by that dragon in a video game it is a personal failure yeah unlike the protagonist of a of a book or a movie where you're just watching their decisions in a video game, you get to make those decisions. Like, you are in charge of where the story goes. And so if the game is predisposed to spooking the protagonist or scaring you, it's like you caused that scare to happen. Yeah, like if you're uh, if you're playing like Silent Hill 2, which I also re- recently started replaying, and you choose to like hide somewhere and then like a big horrible monster happens, you're like, oh, I did this to myself. Yeah. In a way, it's weird because, like, in real-life situations when we're scared, we're scared because we have no control. But in video games when we're scared, we have control, and the game manipulates that control to scare us. One thing that I despise that video games do, it is a very classic scare, and I think that it was... It might have started in the original Bioshock. Yeah. But the idea is you are engaged in some activity that is reasonably time-consuming and puts your brain somewhere else. You finish that activity, you turn around, and an enemy has spawned behind you and is just looking at you. That's frightening as hell. <laughs> yeah, it, it's real. It's real. There's an understood uh, mechanic in games that horror, st- horror games always mess with, and that is if you kill an enemy... The enemy is usually gone from the area. Like, it's it's not... Like, if you walk through an area and there are enemies, you kill them, it's over. You know, the, the danger is gone. But in horror, horror games always mess with, like, there are bodies on the ground that'll get up at weird times. Or enemies will come back to life or just sort of move around in a way that you're not used to. Mm-hmm. Like, in Bioshock, to, to, <laughs> I hate Bioshock. I've actually played it. Or tried to play it, and I got to the, the, the splicers that would crawl backwards on the ceiling. Nope. And they always try to land behind you. Mm-hmm. I got to that point before I was like, uh-uh, I can't. I really can't. There's a, um, what was I, what, what video game was I thinking about? Yeah, so one of the most famous examples of kind of changing up behaviors like that to scare you, and I think one of the most genius, is the original Resident Evil. Oh yeah? Biohazard? Yeah, Biohazard. A lot of bios. Uh, But one of the... I think this is the original and not two. Anyway, uh, one of the core mechanics that you understand from the outset about Resident Evil is there are zombies, they suck, and you have to shoot them. And when you leave a room, there's a little loading screen where a door opens, you go through the door, the door closes behind you. Yeah. And you understand that if you go through that door, zombies cannot follow you. It is a different instance of different problems that you must deal with. Gotcha. So, so yeah, each loaded segment feels like its own sort of uh, area that things can't cross between. So loading a new zone is potentially entering a temporary safe haven. Yeah, and when you enter a new room, you just know that the problems of the previous room won't follow you. And it's easy to imagine that that's a technical limitation. Until, uh, near the end of the game, there are enemies that follow you through doors. What? They introduce a very specific, very hard-to-kill enemy that is relatively slow, but follows you through doors. So it's always slowly creeping after you. 
unless you evade it. Uh, but it introduces the idea that in this world where you used to believe that everything was a distinct, discrete segment, that something can follow you, can come out of doors without warning. Oh. And then that uh, in Resident Evil 3, Nemesis, Nemesis could do the same thing. Ah, Nemesis. Except Nemesis was unkillable, I think. Oh, yeah, that's a concept that they toyed around with in the latest uh, Resident Evil, Resident Evil 7? Yeah. Uh, where you, the, basically, the entire family is unkillable. Mm-hmm. Like, there are monsters, and, and, like, nothing really is completely killable until you get to, like, the, the correct boss fight, basically. Mm-hmm. And even then, you have no way of knowing if they're dead, like, for the rest of the game or not. And that's one thing that will always scare me in video games, is things that are capable of chasing me. Yeah, there are a lot of segments in in the newest Resident Evil where you're just hiding and and evading members of this family, and they will will look under things, they will kick environment things where you can hide, seemingly at random, so it's just like nowhere is exactly safe if you're not moving around you're not going to survive long. And my fear of this goes back a very long time to a video game on the Super Nintendo. The Super Nintendo had a scary game on it? Have you ever heard of Clock Tower? Clock Tower? Mm-hmm. I, I, I have heard of it. With, with the Scissor Man? With the Scissor Man. The original Clock Tower was on Super Nintendo. I feel like maybe there was one on the original Nintendo, but I might just be thinking of the adaptation of house anyway yeah but a uh, clock tower star on the super nintendo there was a translation release that i played on an emulator in like 1998 or whatever i had no idea that it was translated and the the kind of core conceit is once you initially find the primary antagonist of that game which is an undead child wielding a huge pair of scissors the scissor man that the scissor man is capable of following you, following you through doors, and if you hide places, he has a rudimentary level of intelligence that he can find you. So it feels like you're playing against an actual player. It, it does, and one of the really awful things that the game does uh, is if the scissor man stops following you, he is capable of hiding. So you might walk into a room, not see him, but he could be in there. You could not see the scissor man for like 30 minutes. You go to investigate a dresser and he explodes through a window. No. Yeah. Wow. And it uh, it does this great thing where it simulates... It, it really kind of simulates horror movies really well in that the, your only recourse is to run and there are a few things you can do to distract him. But when you're running, there is a random chance you'll trip. Oh, God. Really? Yeah. <laughs> that's messed up it really is it's very good uh it, it seems like the the core mo- mechanic in horror games is either sort of bending the rules of a video game that, that that you would normally expect or having one super powerful enemy that has some of the same powers as the protagonist and I think a lot of that comes down to, to make a video game scary, you have to feel less powerful than something. Exactly. Like, a, a lot of the premise of a, of a video game is 
the player feels like they can change things in the world. They feel like they have agency and power. And like if we rob them of that, or if we introduce someone who has even more agency, someone who kind of uses the same mechanics as the player, then you're robbing them of that agency. And that is frightening. And I think a lot of that can be said for like online games sometimes. I know that one of the most frightening video game experiences I can remember having that I really enjoyed was, uh, you know those Splinter Cell games? Oh yeah, the, the stealth-based sort of like spy mission games. Yeah, there was one on the Xbox that was called Splinter Cell Chaos Theory. Okay. And it had the best multiplayer mode that I've ever played ever. But how... Uh, how... It, it It is spies versus mercenaries. Okay. And you have two, I believe it's two versus two, it might be four versus four. Uh, in my mind, it's two versus two. You have two mercenaries who are playing a first-person shooter. They can only see from the first person. They have assault rifles, they have grenades, they have pistols, they have limited mobility, they have tons of armor. They're very formidable. They're basically the protagonist from first-person shooters. Okay. And the other team is the spies, who are very uh, weak combat-wise, but very nimble, and they are played in the third person. So they've got a, a larger field of vision, they've got more mobility. You know, they can climb up walls, they can do like a split jump between two... They have a ton of mobility, like, I don't know, I remember they did a movement breakdown, and I think you have dozens of different configurations you can put your body in. But I'm guessing they have less health or are squishier. They get killed in like one or two shots. Alright, so you gotta use your mobility to remain hidden. And it's scary from both perspectives. It's awesome, but it's very, very stressful because they have a series of objectives that they have to complete, which is usually like hacking into a computer or something. And let's just take two scenarios. Let's say you're a mercenary. Alright, I am a mercenary. I have a gun. And you have a friend, and you communicate well, because that's the only way to win. And you're like, go, go watch over here. I'll be over by this thing, because I know that, you know, uh, this is a high-value target this early in the game. And okay. you're moving around, and these maps are dark. Oh, so they're not well-lit. Uh, there are some places that are well-lit that are suicide, if, if you're a spy. But generally, they're dark. And the mercenaries have flashlights that have, like, a recharge timer on them. All right. And you're a mercenary, your field of vision is very limited, you're looking around, and then all of a sudden, in the distance, you see a little shape move across between two boxes. <laughs> and you fire at them. Yeah. And then they know where you are. Yeah. And they can snap your neck, or stab you, or stun you. Oh. And you are looking for these highly mobile, very, very fast little animals that, like... One of my favorite things is that since your field of vision is very limited and there's so much to consider, you will actually be fooled by the things that would fool enemies in standard video games. Like, if if they make a noise, you will get distracted by it. <laughs> because you're so focused on finding them that you any potential sound, you're like, what well, was that them? Was that not them? And sometimes you'll freak out because it's very high stress. Like, they can be, like fingertip walking along a ledge and sometimes you might think you see that happening but it's a rat and you shoot your gun and it's very scary <laughs> that's great that that's that sounds frightening as hell 
And the opposite is true where you're a spy and you know if you get shot once or twice, you're dead and you're hiding behind a box and you see these like a team of two surgically precise killing machines with their flashlights scanning the area for you. Oh, man. It's it's very cool. It was one of my favorite multiplayer things ever. And there's nothing overtly frightening. No one's a monster. No one's made of pumpkins. But it's it's very scary. Yeah, I, that reminds me a lot of when Payday 2 was good. Oh, so never. <laughs> no, there was a brief time when you could actually stealth Payday 2 missions before they kept adding more powerful guns and gun mods that were specifically intending to be able to combat the, 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 the police forces when things go chaotic. But for a brief while, when the game first came out, you could actually stealth every mission, but to do so required, like, you had to be precise, sneaking, uh, you had to basically map out all of the guards' routes, but sometimes the guards would, they would randomly have a new path that, mm-hmm. you, that you know, you, you spend like five minutes observing these guards and mapping out their routes, and then all of a sudden, when you're actually going through it, for some reason this time, they turn around when they shouldn't. And that's like a great heist simulator because it's like, what if something goes wrong? What if your plan's perfect, but just human error, man? Yeah, and the scariest thing about the game was that sometimes for no reason the guards would just know you were there. Oh, great. <laughs> it, it was Sometimes it was a bug. Sometimes you could attribute attribute it to like lag, server lag. And sometimes they would they would get suspicious if a door that they had seen closed before was suddenly open. <laughs> but the psychic guys, the ones who just knew you were there, those were the scariest. Hey, psychics are the scariest kind of people. Yeah, d- just wait till precogs are a thing, and we're all afraid to do anything because it could be, uh, it could be a crime. Our thoughts are the most sacred. Yeah. I think designing a scary video game in a way is a lot easier than a movie or a book because you're coming to it with the preconceived notion that your audience is familiar with at least the basic mechanics of video games and you can mess with that to hell. Yeah, because, I mean, if you're making a scary movie, you have to be like, what taps into the fear of an audience member? And if you're making a scary game or one that is a scary game without a ton of tact... You can be like, what can I put here that will be startling and dangerous? Yeah. like If you think about a game like Undertale, and you, you're, you're a little bit of spoilers, and you get to like the true ending, all of a sudden the game is like messing with your ability to play it. It's messing, it's threatening your save file. Mm-hmm. It, it's like not letting you launch it. And it's like, wait, what? How? How? The, I should be more powerful than this game. Why can't I launch my own game? And then, like, what else is it in? What else is it affecting? And then I guess, uh, maybe the same could be said for horror movies, because some horror movies exist to play with your perception of watching a movie, like Oculus. Yeah. Oculus is a very uh, good horror movie, because it is essentially a movie you have to watch twice to understand what it's doing. Because if you watch it once... Uh, it a lot of the things just don't seem to make a lot of sense. And if you watch it a second time with the knowledge that it is a movie shot from the perspective of someone who is being tormented by something that changes your perspective, yeah, then it, it becomes something else entirely. 
That's interesting, because then I feel like when a horror movie gets elevated to the level of, like, messing with the the media or the format that it's being rendered in, then it reaches, like, a, just another level of horror. And, of course, you have to avoid the the pitfall of trying to do that, but just coming off as being shitty and meta and cute. Yeah, it's a very fine line, and at no point can you shy away from the horror or not do the horror to the full extent, because then it's just like, well, why, why is this other stuff here? Mm-hmm, exactly. Uh, horror movies are hard, and I, I, I you know, I, I don't think I ever want to get involved with making one, even if I'll probably never have the opportunity anyway. I feel like the, uh, whoa. What's up? I just kind of had like a, like an idea for a horror movie. I'll talk to you about it later. Okay. We're it's gonna... a horror movie about a podcast, no. Oh. But uh, I, I think that one thing that the Frightened Times has taught us. Yeah. Is that no matter how deep we look into all of our fears, there's still something there that we don't totally understand. Yeah, I feel like if we ever truly understood horror, then the genre of horror movies and books and video games would be impossible to recreate. Then maybe then we, in this time of frightenings, can say that horror is something that can't possibly be understood. And maybe we can come to the agreement or the conclusion that it shouldn't ever be understood. And maybe the folly was on us dedicating this month of Frightened Times to trying to understand what scares us, what is at the heart of fear, when the heart of fear is a lack of understanding. Yeah, but that makes me afraid that we've wasted a whole month. That's that's scary. Yeah, it makes you afraid, so it succeeded. <laughs> well, at least we came to some sort of horrible, horrifying conclusion. I really did think at some point in this month we might have been able to wring some kind of truth from the horrors we've experienced, but given our time, I am more perplexed than ever. More questions than answers have been raised, and I don't think this month of Frightened Times is going to leave me anytime soon. Well, may it be a, a lifelong pursuit to understand horror, or at least understand our... our inability to understand it so if we then admit that horror comes from a lack of understanding then the rest of our lives are going to be filled with fear i don't think i don't i think fear is a good thing i don't think we should try to eradicate fear completely because fear keeps us safe in a way it stops us from doing things that otherwise might bring us harm and it lets us know when things are up you know when when danger is afoot it, it lets us know when danger is afoot, and sometimes fear can do unexpected things, like make an entire city listen to jazz. Yeah, you know, sometimes there might be a good benefit from fear. How do we scare people into listening to our podcast? Uh, I think we need to go up to people and scream, Zero Credits Podcast will kill you unless you listen to jazz. No, hold on, flip it, reverse it. I'm going to start writing a manifesto right now, telling people that I am the Axeman of New Orleans, and I will not kill them if they're listening to our podcast. Oh, <laughs> that's great. Uh, it might might do more harm than good. I feel like you're, you're implicating yourself in some way, but... uh it's at least worth a shot. 
hey, I feel like it's going to do a lot more harm than good if someone's not listening to my podcast and I have to kill them with an axe that they own. <laughs> yeah, so for your own good, start listening to Zero Credits. So I'm not going to say that Zero Credits podcast is the first podcast to say, if you don't listen to it, we'll kill you. But it is one of them. <laughs> it is one of them. Uh well, I think on that note, I think we should get to a little bit of fan mail that we got this month. Oh, fan mail? And, uh, yeah, I, I, th- it's related to Frightened Times, and now that we're sort of sending the Frightened Times off, I feel like it. this is a, 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 good, a good message to read in mem- memoriam? Yeah, in memoriam of the Frightened Times, we send it off with a little bit of love. Because what is love without fear? And what is fear without fans? <laughs> and so this comes from First, and First writes, Hi, gentlemen. I gotta say, I am definitely a fan of the reading stories over spooky tracks that y'all have been doing all professional-like. Could this somehow be a more regular segment? I would continue to be a fan of it, even if it's not spooky after November. Just looking for more of that sweet, capital G, capital C, good content. Can't wait, can't wait to hear more first. P.S. I really hope that my ZCPC name is actually first, because I can't remember it, and I can't definitively look it up. If it's wrong, please don't correct me on air. Oh gosh, please don't read any of the P.S. on air. Well, I think we handled that email about as well as we possibly could. Yeah, I I feel like there were no faux pas in that at all. So, should we, or could we, do a a reoccurring segment with reading stories over tracks? I'm not going to lie to you, Henry, so I won't. I've really enjoyed recording the spooky story elements of this podcast. I really enjoy taking some time to really digest some good, high-quality mystery writing. And it's something that I've really been looking forward to when it's my turn to edit the podcast. Yeah, I've only edited one of these episodes so far, but it kind of re-sparked my love of editing these episodes and adding in little effects or manipulating audio to produce certain effects that we we kind of shied away from because I think we just got too into the routine of making the podcast and this is like a way to refresh thinking of what it takes to to produce one of these episodes sometimes you can get too wrapped up in producing the c that you forget to produce the g exactly that, that that's that's so good did you just think up? Did you just come up with that? I did. Yeah, because we were just so focused on getting content out that we were sort of letting it, letting the quality of the content slip. And so maybe maybe we can continue reading, if not unresolved mysteries, maybe something related to what we want to talk about that week or something that's currently happening. Maybe we can continue to read excerpts or snippets of things and putting cool or related tracks underneath it i think it's certainly worth a try and i think with our track record of promising things to our listeners and not delivering i will abstain from promising to do that (laughs) hey i made good of my promise to 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 watch the shining even though we came to the conclusion that it wasn't a horror movie i i mean you did you turned over a new leaf new era for the podcast yeah so i will half promise that we will 
try to do more of that capital G, capital C, good content in the future. If you average out 0 and 0.5, you get 0.25. I mean 25%. 20, 25%. You have a, a 25% promise. promise that we are going to do this for you. All right. So you can put that in your bank account and I guess watch to see if it actually does anything. And I'm the man, I'm the man, I'm the man. <laughs> Thank you, the killers. I got scariest in the bank. Money in my tank. Thank you, First, for that beautiful letter. Yes, thank you, First. And to all you other listeners out there who might want to be featured on the podcast with your very own ZCPC nickname, John, what can they do? Well, if you want to email us just as First did and uh, First's decedents, nope, those are people who get what you have when you die. The people who came before First and after First did, you can email us at zerocreditsisapodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to send us a real tiny email that anyone can read, you can send us a tweet at zcpcwhj on twitter.com, which stands for Henry... Zoo peasants. That's right, zoo peasants. Once again, that's zcpcwhj on twitter.com. You can find us on Facebook by searching for Zero Credits Podcast. Rate, comment, and subscribe on iTunes. It's the best way to get people to care about this show. And if you rate us during the month of October, you will be entered into the Skeletono Fun Contest. That's correct. All you gotta do is rate, rate us review us and email us that you've done so and you could win a prize package featuring dead birds and spooky stories to tell in the in the dark and additional prizes additional prizes and we stream video games sometimes on twitch.tv slash zero credits we should get on that more we really should. I need more free time. There's a bunch of big life stuff happening for me right now that the podcast will hear about later. That's correct. So just just follow us on Twitch and then we'll get to that later. Yeah, subscribe. They can't yet. They can only follow. Okay, so you should hover where a subscribe button will eventually be and wait with bated breath for its arrival. That's right. And uh, is that... Is that everything? Did you mention Facebook? Yeah, you can find us on Facebook. Just search Zero Credits Podcast. We're there. We're on Facebook. That's us. And from all of us here at the Zero Credits family, as the the frightened times come to an end, another beautiful year in the tank. I know that last year the frightened times didn't happen, but, you know, sometimes you have to take an off year. I don't know. What was it? A leap year? Get off my back. Yeah. From all of us here at the Zero Credits family... Well, I, I guess, except Trevor? Yeah, I, the, I don't know, man. Okay, you know what? Here's what I'm going to do. What are you going to do? You can edit this out, but before we end this podcast, because I know the second I hang up, we're not going to talk for another week. I'm going to get Trevor on the horn, see if we can figure out this whole thing. And, I mean, we got to have an episode description. We can't end the frightened times without a good, high-quality Trevor description. Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, yeah. Go ahead and uh, get call him up. Let's 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 come on. We, we've got a little bit of time left. Let, let's let, let's suss this out. Okay, let me let me get my contacts open here. Give me one second. Let's see. And Trevor.
We're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. The figure watches the two individuals through the glass. Its torso begins to vibrate, almost as if it's ringing. It sends its bloated purple arms and tendril fingers searching throughout the porous mass that is its vibrating body. The figure finds a small rectangular device, glowing and vibrating, lodged deep in its crumbling ribcage. Its many eyes pour over the device, so foreign, so alien. A circle appears on the screen with a large ZC written in white Futura bold font. The symbols look familiar to the figure, but it does not understand. I think this has something to do with me, the figure says. The phone stops ringing and the figure melts further, oozing into a black puddle. I wonder what I was supposed to do, the figure growls, its voice becoming strained and faint. The joints of its bloated arm wear away and the phone falls to the floor. I'm so tired. So tired. So tired. The figure begins to walk, away from the window and its glaring red light, away from the phone buzzing on the ground and the lingering questions in its mind. It finds itself staring at a large black cable coming from the room. The cable is plugged into a machine with a satellite dish. The machine has a screen that says broadcasting, not that the figure can read it. There's a chair in front of the machine and a young 20-something sits in front of the screen, his hands on the keyboard. The figure walks up to this 20-something and recoils when it draws near. It recognizes those hands, those arms, that hair, that face, everything save the eyes which are nothing but two black voids. So, the 20-something says, you made it. The figure does not respond. What's the matter? Do I have your tongue now? The 20-something laughs. So pathetic, Trevor. So very pathetic. The figure's mind reels. The name Trevor sets its mind ablaze with pain. Every sacrifice you made, every time you let a piece of your humanity slip away, where did you think it went, Trev? The figure that used to be Trevor begins to screech. That's right. You gave everything to the very thing you were trying to stop. You are the frightened times now, Trevor. The fake Trevor laughs, a low, warped laugh. It turns back toward the screen and raises both hands to the keyboard. And as soon as I write this last description, I'll ensure the frightened times never end. The figure throws itself at Trevor's body. Its one remaining arm and tendrils rip and claw at the soft flesh. They collide into the machine, which begins to spark. The figure is oozing so much now, its form melting into a black liquid. What are you doing? The fake Trevor screams. This is your own body, you idiot. The more you hurt me, the more you're giving away all that's left of you. So be it, the figure thinks, as clumps of flesh and bone shred away on both sides. The machine sparks more, lighting up the abyss with a hot, white phosphorus light. A spark lands in the ooze, and the figure feels an intense burning sensation in every direction. For a brief second, it smells burning flesh and it sees the body that once belonged to it smoking. There's no going back, fake Trevor says, its voice undeterred by the damage. You'll be nothing. And neither will you, the figure growls. It wraps its tendrils around fake Trevor's neck and wrenches until it hears a distinct crack. 
the body falls limp, spasming in the electric shock. The figure, now an oozing puddle, its watery eyes begin to close, a wave of last sights rush through the decrepit remains of its mind. Everything is painless, everything is wonderful, and soon, everything ends.